Alleluia. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just sacrifice, Lord, ourselves as an offering before you today, Lord. We offer ourselves a living sacrifice. Not that we ourselves are sufficient, Lord, in ourselves have anything to offer. Only that we, Lord, are moved to freely give ourselves and worship to you because of your sacrifice for us. I pray that these words that we have sung, Lord, would represent our hearts crying out in glory and admiration, in worship and gratitude for what you have done. As we open up your scriptures, I pray that you would write the words therein on the tables of our heart. I pray, Lord, that this morning that you would draw your people together in a unified voice of praise, Lord, as we hold up in our attention our Lord Jesus Christ, that He may be enthroned on the praises, that He may be enthroned in our hearts, on our minds, in our confession, and in our service today, that communion might, Lord Jesus, achieve its desired purpose to remember For each of us, it would be a point of remembrance and a proclamation and a means of grace to draw us back to the reality of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning is our communion Sunday. So we will uh, open up the word at this time and at the close of the message, open the communion table for those of you who are believers this morning. And confessing with me faith in Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 in our communion series brings us to verses 1 through 9. In a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the, of the Word. And we will give our attention to what has been apostolically declared and laid down for us, His church, to follow for all ages. This morning, the title of the message is, God Snaps His Fingers. An alternate title could be simply the command, pay attention. If you have ever snapped your fingers in the face of a child who is daydreaming or not paying attention to what you said, you know the illustration that I'm drawing on in the title of this message. Sometimes God, through His Word and through various means, will snap His fingers in the face, graciously in the face of His servants, to draw our attention off of things that would be idolatry, destructive, um, deception, and to point us back to our only hope and our only vision for a straight and narrow path of progress, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So with that introduction, if you are able, stand with me and let us read Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God, who bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Verse 5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, 
or the Son of Man that you care for Him? You made Him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Our author in the book of Hebrews continues to lay out his case, his irrefutable case for the sufficiency and the superiority of Jesus Christ. He lays out his case, draws as his witness Old Testament scriptures, and pointedly declares that this church that he's writing to must repent lest they suffer the fate of anyone who does not pay close attention to what they had heard, revealed to them by apostolic authority, and revealed to them by the revelation of the Old Testament, and if they would not take heed to his warning, he is concerned that they would indeed drift away. God snaps his fingers in this letter, in the face of a church that is distracted, albeit focusing their attention on what in any other conversation would be considered a good thing. Angelic, heavenly thoughts, beings and ideas that captivate the mind, that draw the attention of those who like to dream about the ethereal and spiritual. All of these things could well carry a conversation, no doubt, within this church. There were affections that were easily drawn into conversations about supernatural things, perhaps. But what was missing in their experience was something more important than mere spirituality. Mere thoughts and reflections and fanciful notions about a future, an idea, and, an air, and a realm above them in the spirit realm. What their attention needed to be drawn to was Jesus Christ, their sufficient Savior, the only Lord, the powerful, preeminent, inarguable Lord of history, Lord of their salvation, the resurrected Lord, the testimony of His Scripture must return to the prominent place in their affections or they would be set adrift like a vessel in a harbor with a storm rising in the distance and an anchor beneath the surface. But that necessary rope or chain to connect this vessel to that mooring post is growing weaker and weaker and it must stay connected. Otherwise, they would suffer their own demise crashing against the rocks of apostasy. Our sermon title this morning, God Snaps His Fingers in the Face of His Church, illustrates the author's aim in chapter 2. Wake up, he shouts, to this church that was in danger of falling asleep, falling asleep at the switch and becoming prey to the enemy's wiles. He snaps his fingers in the face of the spiritually glazed eyes of a church in immediate, imminent danger, calling their attention to what they have heard lest they drift away in the sea of self-confident apostate deception. Turn over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 6. 
In contrast to Hebrews 2.1, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Our author refers to the anchor of the soul in Hebrews 6 verse 19. So aptly in illustrated contrast, we read the following. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If those who are reading these words at the time this was written and listening to them at the time it's proclaimed today do not understand or have a vague idea if it is not written on their soul and working its way into subsequent affections and decisions and sanctification, the notion of Christ as their high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who destroyed the curtain of separation between the favor of God and the lost sinner by His blood and sacrifice alone, then they would surely be cut free from the mooring and anchor of their soul, namely the crucified Christ, resurrected and ascended, ruling and reigning, and be set adrift in a sea of lostness. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the author proclaims, but it is full, only found in one location. location. And thus, the message is clear to us today and to the church then, to whom much is given, the revelation of Christ at your own salvation experience, the testimony of Him, and these pages. Every American certainly at least has access to a Bible at the touch of a button on their electronic device, perhaps sitting on any number of shelves in their home, certainly in every library, even most hotel rooms. You can open up the Word of God. Thus it stands as an indictment against those who are jaded to its truths. And the, and the call to those in that condition is to whom much is given. Much is proportionally required. In Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus gives instructions to His disciples who are bringing the apostolic Word They are anointed and commissioned by the Lord of glory to bring the truth of the kingdom of God house to house in Judea. What if the house is saying, no thank you, I'm busy? What if that knock on the door is not met with a welcome embrace and an openness to receive the words on the lips of the apostles? What then? We have this message, and if anyone will not receive you, Matthew 10, 14, or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. When you leave that house or town, verse 15 says, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Turn over in the same book. Some of these references will be familiar based on our Matthew series. Jesus uses again the imagery of judgment. That categorical judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah of the Old Testament to bring to the reality of the hearer the Uh, accountability for the message the gospel preached to them. And Matthew 11, 20, he says a similar, pronounces a similar judgment over whole peoples, populaces, cities. He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Cherozin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment than for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
He goes on to condemn Capernaum in similar language. Verse 24, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of, of judgment for the land of Sodom than for that city as well. For what? For having a measure of the truth, the declaration of the gospel, for hearing and even seeing in some cases the miraculous touch of the Messiah, raising the dead, healing people of sicknesses and diseases, breaking and multiplying the bread. And they were unimpressed and unrepentant. Thus this archetypical judgment, archetypical judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is invoked not as a maximal judgment, This is the worst that he'll ever get if you deny the Word of God. No, but as a minimal example. Those who would reject the Word of Christ revealed in the flesh and declared through His Word can expect worse in the day of judgment than that which was incurred by Sodom and Gomorrah if they remain jaded to the value and ultimately to the truth of Christ. It does not bode well for a post New Covenant Church or populace, if they hear in so many words or read on so many pages a message of so great a salvation and have a take it or leave it attitude, if they take for granted what God has graciously given at the cost of His Son's blood, how much more worthy are they of utter exile and wrath than those who've received only the more vague testimony of nature. John Calvin is quoted as saying, related to this topic and this principle that is reiterated in Hebrews, God wishes gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. Think of the gift of Christ. How valuable is Christ to us? God wishes gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser our ingratitude if they do not have their proper value for us. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. Those are chilling words of summary summary and truth that simply say the same things the author of Hebrews and Christ Himself in Matthew, has declared, in accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. I hope this message and this preliminary introduction to this section of Hebrews strikes a somber chord in the heart of all of us. I hope that as I read these words in my own private time of devotions, and as you hear them in your, wor- in your ears, even as they're delivered to you today, that a twinge, at least, a shudder, perhaps, of the fear of the Lord is found coursing through your consciousness. And then that raises the next question. If we realize to any degree, by the grace of God, the great danger and severity of taking too lightly, taking for granted the gracious gift of Christ, Where can we run? What are practical apostasy or backsliding preventions that we can take so that we do not fall prey to the judgment prophesied of those who shut the door to the truth, whose eyes were jaded to the pricking of the Holy Spirit, the conscience of a man? 
revealing to him the condition of his soul and his depravity apart from Christ. How can we embrace meditations, thoughts, spiritual disciplines that would soften and not harden the heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Hebrews is written for a church who needed to hear these kinds of things. And there's four practical lessons, perhaps, in just the introduction to Hebrews 2 that we can pay attention to this morning, and I pray that we would. So under this heading, I'll give you four. Apostasy prevention requires that we, first of all, pay attention to the source. Pay attention to the source of declared truth. Secondly, pay attention to the consequences. The consequences of taking that truth for granted. Thirdly, pay attention to history. And fourthly, pay attention to revelation in the Word of God itself. First of all, pay attention to the source. The author of Hebrews turns our attention to the power behind the words of both the Old Covenant and the New. And again, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, we read the following, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And then listen closely to verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. We have every good reason, if we reject this word, we have every good reason to be judged. We have no good reason to be unoppressed, unrepentant, and, and be, to remain in a state of hardness. Why? For two reasons, or for the first reason that we're considering today, because of the source, the authority, the voice, and the power and emphasis behind the delivery of the Word of God. In the first place, the author cites two examples, and it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. The first example is of Old Covenant mediation. He says for the church, pay attention. Your apostasy prevention church, he writes to this group in Hebrews, your apostasy prevention requires that you pay attention to the source of Old Covenant mediation. That is, as he describes it, The declared power revealed by angels, the message declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and therefore every transgression or disobedience receiving a just retribution. To what event is he referring? Well, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. As the author says, this message was declared by angels. He's making reference in a, a brief poetic history to a powerful moment, a milestone, a watershed moment of revelation in the history of God's covenant people. And we pick up on this story in Exodus 19. I'm sure these verses will be familiar to you. But as we read them, consider the power behind this event and how the circumstances of their delivery underscores the importance of God's revealed truth. Exodus 19, 17, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We read further of the sobriety of the situation. What a fearful moment this was. And the measures that were taken because of the seriousness of this exchange. In verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people. Moses was called to bring a warning as he was mediating the word of God to the people. Just as the apostolic word coming through the author of Hebrews is taken from the apostles by him to the church to warn them. Lest they take lightly the word of God. And he says, or God tells Moses to relay to the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look at, and many of them perish. Let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. So we see here in the record of Old Covenant mediation that we are called to pay attention to the source. What are the ethereal, the powerful, supernatural circumstances briefly mentioned as declared by angels in the Hebrews record to which the author refers? Well, his message could also be stated perhaps as follows. For since the message declared in Old Covenant mediation came by way of a mountain engulfed in flames and fire and lightning, by signs in the natural realm of earthquake and thunder, by blasts of heavenly voices like trumpets that would deafen and fill the ears and the experience of millions of onlookers. Since that message was declared in that way, and it proved to be reliable inasmuch as it had bite, it had meaning, it had power, because every transgression against it was worthy and received just retribution, the author goes on to say, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The new covenant revelation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Pay attention to the source. The old covenant mediation came with a shaking of heaven and earth, came through the mediator Moses, mediating forces represented by angelic activity. It was an interruption of the natural order such that it was so obvious the power therein contained that not even the blind could escape the significance of that moment. Because even those who couldn't see would hear, would feel the heat and the power and the shaking of the ground beneath their feet as the power of God revealed the Word of God to his people. But notice the message of the author of Hebrews is pay attention to a greater source still. The new covenant revelation comes to us with greater power than the circumstances I just described to you. In the case of God intervening in the new covenant, now we receive his word not from a man, a mere man, a mediator like Moses, not from a mere interruption in the elements or on tablets of stone, but instead even more, even greater, and even more powerful, it is declared at first by the Lord. 
Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, taking on flesh, preaching the kingdom of God, interrupting history, attesting to those who hear, attesting to us and to those who heard, with the witness of signs, wonders, various miracles, and the gifts of the Spirit, He revealed to us the Word of God. And so we are called to take it even more seriously than those of the Old Covenant did. Because the source, Jesus Christ in the flesh, is even more powerful means, an even more powerful means of revelation than the Old Covenant shaking of heaven and earth and delivering the law on Mount Sinai. This new covenant mediation is attended with signs, wonders, miracles, and the apostolic testimony. Jesus Christ went about healing, delivering, preaching, revealing, prophesying, raising the dead, setting the demonically oppressed free to think consciously again. He went forth with the power of God and manifest that power in ways that shook the whole countryside and called everyone to attention that there was a prophet who was intervening in history with power and effect that is unprecedented even in the mere authority of his words. When Jesus preached without even healing a single person, those who heard him were stunned saying, he has greater authority than our scribes. And then when he added the exclamation point of healing upon healing, it multiplied the culpability of the hearers. It raised the stakes of the accountability of the truth. And then when he had commissioned and anointed his apostles, even more so then, and to greater degree, would the hearers be responsible for this truth because they themselves spoke with other tongues in Acts chapter 2. They themselves were used as instruments of healing and divine interaction to testify to the power that was being proclaimed through their words that the Christ had come. And healing from the sickness of sin and death was found in the crucified and resurrected Messiah. God bore witness by Himself through the incarnate Son, through signs, wonders, and miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit from those who heard and delivered the truth. And so the hearers... And this church had better pay attention to the source. It was so important that they take seriously the value of the truth delivered by all those means, lest they drift away and through hardness of heart become lost, jaded, hardened, and impenetrable to the appeal to repent and place your faith once again in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, lest this group of confessing believers drift into apostasy and obscurity. So backsliding prevention requires that we pay attention to the source. Secondly, backsliding prevention. Apostasy prevention requires that we pay attention to the consequences. Not only consider the foundation the source and the authority behind the spoken word of God. We are also to consider with fear the consequences of taking that instruction lightly. This is a theme throughout Hebrews. Warnings are repeated all through the text. This is one of the first. 
But as we, I'll just give you a brief overview, continue through the pages, we find this kind of language and this important appeal repeated over and over again. Chapter 3, verse 12, the author declares, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then there's more exhortation. Apostasy prevention plan, if you will, continues to unfold. He says, exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And the message goes on in similar fashion. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, there's more warning language. For it is impossible to restore once again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God by their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain and it often, that often falls upon it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end to be burned. There's a gracious anecdote in the, toward the end of this warning in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so the message is to survey the soil of your own soul, and the soil indeed of the church that we are blessed to be a part of, indeed, if it is producing fruit. But if we find it producing, indeed, thorns and thistles, it could be that we are in a very dangerous, precarious position and need to hear that warning, that we need to move and take seriously Move our affections onto our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and take seriously the warnings of these scriptures that we would set our mind and our souls to consider and to meditate on the things that belong to salvation. This language continues throughout the book, chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Chapter 12, perhaps the most chilling of all, verses 15 through 17. It says, See that to it that no one falls to, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The Word of God uses the means of warning to keep us in the faith, to keep us grounded on the rock, Jesus Christ, and to show us the guardrails of the straight and narrow path. But we need to hear this language, and we must take it seriously. We need the fear of the Lord. We must pay attention to the consequences of not taking seriously, of not weeping anymore for our own sin, 
of not crying out in repentant heart in those times when we do fall short. Not throwing ourselves repeatedly at the mercy of the Lord in worship and in prayer because these are a sign of a truly penitent heart. The Lord uses the means of warning to show us the frightening situation of these examples that He has given. The hardness of heart of the people in the wilderness. Esau not finding space in his own soul to repent. Or those who lie outside of the gracious gift that God supplies. Like the fellowship of the believers together. And the exhortation that we are called to offer to one another. Such that they begin to despise and resent the bride of Christ. They stayed away too long. They found fellowship somewhere else. They seek their identity in a different way, fellowshipping with people on different terms. They find meaning in relationships that aren't governed and purposed in Christ as much as any other trivial, mindless, or vocational, or hobby, or pursuit of this life. Things that wither and corrupt. Things that moth and rust and thieves destroy. And things that utterly burn and are incinerated as so much dust in the end. And are cremated and thrown into the wastebasket of history. Become so much meaningless refuse in the end. We must pay attention to the consequences of ostracizing ourselves from the biblically ordained means to stay soft of heart, to stay close to Christ, to stay connected with one, each, one another, to, that, to have that standard raised more and more often in our heart, in our soul, in our consciousness of the holiness of God so that we might see our sin and repent and reject it and embrace God's glorious program of sanctification for the life of a believer. We're reminded in the book of Hebrews of a biblical truth that is underscored from cover to cover. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the wages of sin as death is clearly revealed in original sin. The consequence of Adam and Eve's fall was that they would die that day, and certainly and most substantially they did. And their spirit, they were condemned in their sin to spiritual death. And only resurrection life through faith in the coming Christ would raise them and give them hope once again. But until such time, a flaming sword of God's judgment guarded the tree of life as it were. Exodus nineteen twenty-one through 25, in that passage we referred to earlier, the consequences of sin as a capital offense were obvious if they did not consecrate the few that were called to come to the mountain themselves, they would be struck dead in a moment. If they, even in their liturgical order and the ceremonial faithfulness they were called to show to Christ, if the, uh, if the Israelites did not follow that in obedience, you think of the man who reached out and touched the ark, for instance, they would die immediately. If they so much as broke the Sabbath or committed one of the crimes that God had sovereignly instituted punishment and of death for in the Old Covenant, It was indeed a capital offense. Justice, righteousness, holiness, and God's word demanded that that person under those conditions indeed be killed. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12 
I'm sorry, too, in this passage we've been reading, we read as much, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, don't be mistaken. In the age of grace, where God has been revealed graciously in Christ, this is not to say that death is no longer the just payment for our sin. It indeed remains the same. And we cannot understand salvation or the grace of Christ unless we understand that indeed every sin ultimately is a capital offense and is deserving of the condemnation of death itself. In the old civil order, there was a testimony of this and the way the Hebrew nation was to constitute themselves. And it was to be a reminder that unless they were, their sin was dealt with in a way where shedding of blood, which was necessary for the remission of sins, was a reality in their experience, their own blood would certainly be shed. Chapter 3, verse 17 of Hebrews, And with whom he provoked for forty years, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? You see, the disobedience and wilderness wanderings left dead bodies strewn through that pathway in the desert from Egypt to the Canaan land. Indeed, not a single person except for just a couple. Most all that generation died in the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and following reminds us again of the sanctions of Old Covenant law. And it illustrates to us the justice and severity of the truth of God and consequently the justice and severity that is deserving of us if we sin against Him. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Thus we are to pay attention to the consequences, to never forget the fear of the Lord as we consider the gospel, that there are means that are supplied in the word of God of warning lest we fall away, and we must and we need to hear them. And also that sin is deserving of death. And now let me get to the Christ-centered part of this truth in paying attention to the consequences to thank Chris Dorr for this uh, illustration. I was talking to him yesterday. He brought my attention to a, a sermon. You know, there used to be way different messages preached from most pulpits in this land. There was a time in this country where pastors would actually encourage their parishioners, their flock to attend, Chris was telling me this, to attend a public execution. You can imagine during a time where terms of justice were much more tangible and there wasn't so many lawyers who would kick the can of justice inevitably down the road. There wasn't so much confusion in the civil order as to what capital crimes deserved. And so the public hangings and things of that nature were far more frequent in the cultural experience of our country. There was a time, interestingly enough, where pastors such as myself would encourage their flock, you know, next week on Friday at 3 o'clock in Town Square in Cross Lake, so-and-so who committed murder and has been tried and shown to be guilty of this crime will be hung 
I want to encourage all of you, those of you with kids who are conscious enough even perhaps to understand this situation to attend and to realize in that event that we are witnessing the wages of sin and that justice demands payment when we transgress God's holy law. Now, if I actually propose such a thing, it would be absolutely shocking in our modern ears. But it wasn't always the case. The question remains, did they have a good point? Was there any merit to that kind of exhortation? As I was thinking about that, as I realized how different modern circumstances are to the context of justice and preaching not that long ago, it occurred to me that every time we gather at the Lord's table, we are witnessing a hanging, if you will. Jack and I were talking this morning. I asked my son, what do you think about in your mind's eye? What do you imagine during communion? And he said to me, I think about Jesus on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, those who were there and by the Spirit's eye-opening power, even today, witnessed an execution, a hanging as it were. This was a just execution for the sins of of all of the elect. Jesus Christ took on our sins. They were credited to Him and He suffered and died and there were witnesses there. And in the Lord's table today and communion today, we witness again an execution. What are we to take from this experience? We are to take at least this much and more. We are to take the truth that our sins deserve death utter and total punishment, the wrath of God applied. And when Jesus Christ suffered on our account, it was a substitutionary atonement. The wrath of God rested upon Him. According to Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush Him. And so by His stripes, by His death, we are healed. This message is becoming harder and harder for our culturally conditioned modern ears to understand. I have heard even recently debates by confessing Christians, ostensible Christians, who are arguing against the notion of substitutionary atonement, saying Jesus did not receive the wrath of God. He died for other reasons. It was a gracious sacrifice, but indeed had nothing to do with God's condemnation for sin, really. It was a sacrifice, but in a different sense. I warn you, church, to reject and to shun as utter blasphemous heresy any such notion. The entire Bible from cover to cover falls apart if we lose the truth that when Christ hung on that cross, we were witnessing an execution that absorbed the wrath of God that our sins truly deserved. And thus, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, when we remember and proclaim the the truth thereof in communion today, it is an apostasy prevention plan. We are paying attention to the consequences of our sin when we consider the suffering and the death of our Lord. Thirdly, let us pay attention to history. Our author in the book of Hebrews, again, chapter 2, he says, as we continue to read in verse 5, Though it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man? Did you care for him? Made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Remember, church, our memory is jogged with the first generation of hearers of this epistle that Jesus Christ has been given control of all of history. God did not give to some angelic power or even to some mere human, some power and world changer today, subjection of the world to come. No, indeed, God has given history as a gift to Christ. And this world now is ruled by Jesus Christ our Lord. He in His exalted position seated at the right hand of the Father, is now ever living to make intercession for you and for me. And he has demonstrated his superiority over every other name. There is no name but the name of Jesus Christ whereby man can be saved. And there is no name higher than Jesus Christ as an authority and power and ultimate rule over this whole world and history itself. He is, according to Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There is a corroborating apostolic record of this new world order, if you will. Pay close attention to how the Bible declares Authority over history. In Second Peter, one other example, I'll turn you there briefly, we see a similar testimony. We see in this record, in Second Peter 3, we see in this record that history, according to the Bible, is a measure of the time between. Time is a measure, if you will, of the distance between acts of favor and judgment by Almighty God. Time finds its purpose as measured against the milestones of divine intervention in atonement, in redemption, and ultimately in the glory of God and our salvation and the redemption of our souls and ultimately this entire world. And as the days and years and eons unfold, we will one day be ushered in with every other blood-bought saint into that new heavens and earth. And thus, every knee will confess... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as much. But in the meantime, let us join the apostolic corroborating declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord over history. Read with me in 2 Peter 3, verses 4 through 13. It says, They will say, that is the unbelievers, the naysayers, the blind, and the deaf, they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? You Christians believe in your religion as a crutch to deal with the realities of this difficult life. I need no such thing. I am the captain of my destiny. You can hear between the lines the scoffers of our hour. They say, oh, Jesus is coming back. How long are you going to wait? Is 2,000 years enough time to give up to get your ancient, to relegate your ancient religion into the archaic waste bin of history? They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Do you see the testimony of the unbeliever? There is no divine hand, they say, behind creation. 
behind the government of the universe and this earth. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, verse 5, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged in water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. What Peter is doing here is he's reminding us from the heaven's eye view of the reality of our experience in this world and in this life. And he says significance, the, hu- the future, the past, and history is marked by the milestones of God's intervention in time. He says that time is the measure in so many words between the judgments that we deserved. And also time is a grace- gracious record of God's faithfulness to the elect. So if he has tarried some time and the day of the Lord has proven to us like a thousand years... It is not because there is no God. It is not because He is impotent. It is not because there is any name higher than Christ. No, it is because His long-suffering, grace and patience toward us and all of the elect who will come in during this window of opportunity is more than any mere human mind could ever imagine. Pay attention to these truths. Pay attention, church, to the fact that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, that He calls the shots, that He sets up kings and tears them down, that He has inaugurated and maintains a new world order. The end of the age is upon us, according to the author of Hebrews. That is, there's a different eon that, we have, that has been welcomed and that we have been welcomed into as a result of the advent of Christ. Christ, in Hebrews 1 verse 2 it says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. And so we don't exist, and our fate is not determined at the mercy of international bankers, of UN councils and decrees, and any other manufactured Tower of Babel notion of the sovereignty and autonomy of man. All of those things are like mere dust particles in the furnace of God's judgment and will be incinerated without a trace in a moment, indeed in a snap of His fingers. And while wicked men go on saying things have existed as they were, there is no God, and we are just subject to mere impersonal forces of time, chance, and so on, and matter. Don't believe it for a moment. Rest your faith assured in the attention-grabbing truth of the Word of God. Pay attention to history. Pay attention to the government thereof by Jesus Christ our Lord. And finally, in our message this morning, pay attention to Revelation. 
That is, pay attention to the Word of God. That statement, I hope, is repeated at every church pulpit just about every morning that they meet. Pay attention to the Word of God. Every Bible-proclaiming church opens the Word of God every Lord's Day virtually and says as much or ought to be saying as much in the duty that they take on, namely the preacher delivering the Word of God. Pay attention to the Word. But let this charge go a little beyond the perfunctory notion of simply attending a meeting, giving the obligatory nod to the Scriptures that merely listening to one sermon represents. And let us strive to pray and ask the Lord to cause us to love Scripture, that we memorize it, meditate on it, and become a diligent student of its inner workings. Here's a section of Scripture that's offered by way of example that reveals the Messiah upon second glance and deeper study. And these words are taken from Psalm chapter 8. We read them in Hebrews, cited in Hebrews 2, 6 and through 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. That is a messianic revelation of Christ revealed in the Psalms and this specific example, Psalm chapter 8. And it would escape the, mere, uh, the attention of a mere humanistic scholar. The revelation of the testimony of Psalm 8 requires the Holy Spirit's covenant to covenant revelation. And notice that when the author cites this scripture, he does so knowing, presumably, that his audience is familiar with it. He doesn't say in Psalm chapter 8, which you can find in the Jewish scriptures of the Tanakh or the Old Covenant or what have you, he says instead, it has been testified somewhere. He introduces this citation a little ambiguously. And I take that to be evidence that the people he was speaking to knew very well the Old Covenant Scriptures. So what is the lesson? You can know the Old Covenant Scriptures, let's just say the Word of God. You can know the Word of God very well and still be in danger of drifting away. And still be in danger of drifting away. It's a different kind of knowledge. There's a familiarity with the Word of God that I often hear of those like myself who grew up in the Christian faith and through familiarity simply take it for granted. Have you ever talked to someone or have you ever been that individual who basically is not interested because they have heard over and over again, message after message, preaching their whole life, oh yes, yes, I'm very familiar with all that. You got to realize I grew up in the church and there's a sort of snide, proud, arrogant position that they have laid aside All of this preconditioning. There are so many young people statistically today that fall into this category. It's utterly shocking. The young people of the evangelical church have been set adrift. The the cord to the anchor of Christ, according to Hebrews 6.19, has been sliced in half. Partially by the influence of negligent parenting, by the swallowing, suffocating effects of culture, and namely for the reason, basically, that 
Parents and the church have not instituted and followed a biblical apostasy prevention plan. And when you're talking to individuals like this, invariably you get a sort of jaded response, a prideful attitude, a despising, oh, that was the way I was raised. I've moved on from there. I've grown up and matured in my intellectual understanding. You see, familiarity, mere familiarity is not enough. You must love the Word of God realizing with humility, as we said, its source, the consequences of taking it lightly, the fact that it is the recorded and real revelation of Almighty God into history, revealing to those who do not deserve it, only deserve judgment, a testimony of who He truly is in condescension to the mere sinful human mind in such a way that if the Holy Spirit illuminates it to it, To your heart, it is sufficient for you to see an aspect of the holy God. Is there ever room for for despising the repetition of such a thing? No. For everyone who grew up as I did in the faith, with confessing believing parents, who read the scriptures, who followed the scriptures, the response ought to be, thank you. I did not deserve it. I am so grateful. I honor the influence of the Word of God through, yes, fallible people in my life, but nevertheless, graciously and providentially used. There is not enough moments in this life to contemplate and contain the beauty and power and value of the Scriptures if we were to give every conscious thought to studying the implications of God's revealed word. Let us never despise it. Let us only grow in understanding of its power. Let us pay attention to the revelation of Scripture. Not only is the message familiarity is not enough, but there's also the message that within the word are surprising themes. Themes that you will not get at one glance. Mere intellectual perusal, even in multiple readings without prayer, the Holy Spirit and hermeneutical principles, using the Word of God to reveal the Word of God in play in your own reading. In Psalm chapter 8, the author tells us, perhaps more on this in a later sermon, that it is a revelation of the glory of humanity inasmuch as we are created in the image of God to subdue and to steward His earth, but it is more. It is more, and how would we know if it wasn't revealed to us indeed in Scripture itself that it is a picture of the incarnation You made him for a little while lower than the angels. We understand that to be Christ. Christ taking on human flesh, coming down in his humiliation to earth. And now you've crowned him with glory and honor. And through this act, that is, this subsequent plan in the covenant of redemption taking place in history of humiliation, redemption, glorification, and sovereignty, we have contact with with Almighty God. We have a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We have hope and salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have the promise that our own suffering in this life, in this temporal situation, will lead to glory. Hebrews 12.2, the last verse I'll turn you to this morning prior to communion. Hebrews 12.2 provides a great summary verse for today's message and indeed some of the themes of Hebrews itself. It simply says this, 
This is a message to the church today, the church then. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12.2 provides a theme for the book of Hebrews. It provides a supreme, the supreme object of our attention. Jesus Christ, resurrected, ruling, and, re- and reigning even now. And it provides a reminder of the value of the Lord's table today. What is the value of communion? What would you trade? It'd be, of course, wrong to consider it in mere economic terms. Maybe a better way to ask it is this. What have you made more important than what is represented in a communion service? And is that evidence of our own, your own, idolatry? Remember the quote from Calvin? God wishes gifts to be valued by us at their proper worth. The more precious they are, the baser our ingratitude if they do not have their proper value for us. In accordance with the greatness of Christ, so will be the severity of God's vengeance on all despisers of the gospel. That principle remains even for a communion, which is a gracious gift, a tangible touchstone of our faith, a means to connect us in a real way in our service this morning with the reality of Christ's shed blood, of Christ's broken body. And this morning we're reminded in the book of Hebrews of what a precious gift that is. Let's transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank you and we confess any ingratitude, any hardness of heart, any jaded despising, or perhaps even resentful attitude that we've had towards the means that you supply. We pray that the effect of this message would root out any blindness and deception in our own hearts and return us in our attention to the source of the Word of God. Lord, even as we consider the consequences that we don't have to endure because Christ took them for us, and as we consider, Lord, your power and sovereignty over history, as we consider the beauty and glory and depth of your revelation, and as we consider, Lord, the work of Christ in communion today, I pray that you would draw us, Lord, more closely to that acknowledgement, Lord, of our union with Jesus Christ, our Lord, and also our unity with one another. Bless this time, may it produce fruit, Lord Jesus, of sanctification for every believer in this room. And if there are those among us who fellowship outside the fold, I pray, Lord, as we read last week, that you would go on a journey for that one that's left the 99, as it were, until they are safely there within. And then the table might be open to them to celebrate with us communion in Christ's blood and body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.